Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I am your host, Alex Danzig. We're excited to announce that we are bringing the Cafe Bitcoin Conversation Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Max Kaiser, Lynn Alden, Thomas Strolight, Corey Clipston, and many others from the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button to make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode, or you can join us live on Twitter Spaces, Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern, every morning and become part of the conversation yourself. Thank you again. We look forward to giving you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. Optify locks up 661,000 US dollars by accidentally shutting itself down. Optify has mistakenly shut down its main net while trying to upgrade the protocol. Apparently, the protocol's funds are locked up and will remain so unless Solana validators agree to a patch that will make the protocol recoverable. Don't shake on It's bad for you. Oops. Tomer, Strolite, is this kind of thing even possible in Bitcoin? Yeah, uh, Bitcoin cannot shut itself down by mistake or intentionally. It's not designed with the ability to shut itself down. Uh, so as long as, I mean, it does still require that the laws of physics and math remain unchanged. So uh, if someone comes in and figures out how to change the laws of physics and the realities of math, both of which are timeless and eternal, then we ha- then we have cause for concern. Has there been an oops moment in the history of Bitcoin, Tomer? Uh, the, well, there, there was. In, you have to remember when Satoshi released this thing, he didn't have peer review. He wrote it and released it. And there were some initial bugs, some that he patched before they were exploited as, as they were discovered. But there was there was an inflation bug that was discovered uh, that was exploited and it was caught within a few blocks and um, and and the patched code was fixed, um, ending the fake chain that had the inflation with it. So, th- so there there have been there had been a bug exploited. There's been no. So, so when you said so when you said that it had been caught within a few blocks, it sounds like the protocol, the consensus mechanism of the protocol, was working as intended. Well. Um, that's kind of a social comment that you're making, right? Like someone found a bug that caused inflation and exploited it. And then everybody said, well, this wasn't the intent. So they forked the code to eliminate the exploit. So that's the, that's the actual. That's, that's the important thing I think to understand. Like a lot of people misunderstand this point. I wasn't really sure about this point for a long time. And that is anybody can fork the code. Like Peter, you could, like you could take a copy of it's open source. You could take a you could you could take a copy of Bitcoin Core and modify it and create your own fork. So what makes it magical? And well, I don't know if magical is the right word, but it's like amazing to me that like all the nodes have to go join you on your new monopoly board that you've made new rules for. And if or all they, the nodes they don't, don't. They, they, yeah, they do or they don't. Exactly. Right. Yeah. That's precisely my point. So it's like if you have a shitty idea then all the nodes won't join you on your monopoly board. You're welcome to go play by yourself, which is 
what has happened in Bitcoin. There's been forks, right? Those guys are basically playing by themselves. Like, what? how many nodes are there on BSV now? Three? Something like that? I don't know. It's really low. So, yeah. It's, it's really cool how that works. Were you just talking about BSV? I, I think I, I was looking into that, and they uh, there were some blocks that only had like two or three uh, validator nodes, which is it's just laughable. That's because they only have fifty eight users. No, I, I'm pretty sure it's it's Hector and Hector's four nams. It's all Hector. <laughs> Hector. If you um. If I kind of just go back and offer a short philosophy piece on, on the comment, you know, Satoshi wasn't perfect. Bitcoin wasn't perfect, but they say perfection is the enemy of the good or it's the enemy of the good enough. And I, I think in being imperfect, we actually got a benefit from that, which was that we must always remain vigilant to watch out for flaws, right? Bitcoin isn't, oh, Satoshi, the great one came and flawlessly delivered perfection to us. It was, it is, Satoshi delivered some brilliant insights and then stepped away and not everything was perfect and we have a capacity to improve the thing, but it's not some arbitrary ability to make whatever changes you want to make whenever you want to make them and, you know, and whatever consequences arise, they arise. Like, we all have to move together in these things and we all understand again, I'm, I'm sorry for using the, we all <laughs> um, generalization, Alex, given that it triggered you earlier. So there, there's a lot of people who understand what the intent and design is, and they're not prepared to compromise the intent and design, but should something arise that demonstrates itself to be a vulnerability exploit or weakness, then they will act in concert to patch it up, uh, to prevent it, to fortify against it. So in a sense, it's, I know this sounds like a post-fact rationalization, but it's a good thing that Satoshi didn't deliver Bitcoin perfect and completely finalized to us because we might otherwise become complacent. Was just typing furiously to Jacob. <laughs> All right. Tomer, but, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Alex. I was just going to say no. real quick, like Tomer, like what, like the recent, maybe if we, if we had a perfect Bitcoin, there wouldn't be any shit coins, you know, like, have you ever thought about that? Like if Bitcoin no, was so would, perfect. There would always be shit coins. Yeah. 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 <laughs> would all, because the, what causes shit coins is not an imperfection in Bitcoin. It's not like the shit coins show up and they've improved on it. They show up and they are demonstrations of the fact that there will always be individuals who are who are careless, who are who pursuing money as an end in and of itself without providing value to other people who who just aren't, you know, who aren't appreciative of what does work and what doesn't work. So this was destined to happen. And it's no surprise that it happened. Um, and, and what we're working through the history of this discovery is the demonstration over and over and over again, until enough people learn that this thing only needed to be invented once could only in a sense be invented once you can't reinvent the wheel and you can't reinvent Bitcoin. 
and in the case of Bitcoin, we don't need a second one, even if it's imperfect, because people aren't solving the problems that might be related to its imperfections. That's the effort that Bitcoiners are making is to improve Bitcoin so that it does scale to everyone in the world and and be efficient and cheap and available to everyone in the world for generations. None of these other shitcoins are actually pursuing that goal in any manner that's better than Bitcoin. They're not even pursuing that goal. The overwhelming majority of them are someone saying, hmm, if I launch something and sell it to somebody else and it doesn't cost me anything, I can get really rich. And there's no consideration of what value is created for people downstream. And so that that isn't anything that would have been solved by a allegedly more perfect Bitcoin. And I think even the concept of perfection is uh, we can have a big philosophical discussion on it, but th it may not exist, right? Like perfection in relation to what? Right? There isn't some ideal description of money that's handed down and carved in stone somewhere. And we're just trying to create an invention that meets it. We have to, through trial and error and evolution, get towards something that best suits our needs at some historical point in time. Like if we had been given Bitcoin before computers existed, we wouldn't even understand what it's supposed to be. Um, it can only exist when we have computers and they're networked together and then we can share data and we've discovered cryptography and understand how to use cryptography. So all of these things have a dependency on a particular point in time in our progress as a, as a species or as a civilization. All right, a couple of cool things, or I should say, interesting things. So, the Russian Prime Minister, Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin, hope I'm saying that right, digital assets says digital assets are a safe alternative for all parties that can guarantee uninterrupted payment for the supply of goods from abroad and for export. Uh, I'm not surprised by this. I don't know if any of you guys are. I mean, it seems like an obvious evolution of of what countries will do when they're cut off from the international monetary system. So we've talked about this many times. If you're new, if, if you haven't heard this, basically, when Russia invaded Ukraine, um, Russia's all of their foreign reserve assets in, in banks outside of Russia were frozen. Uh, they weren't allowed to use them. They're not allowed to use the US dollar to transact in global business. And so um, Russia basically said, fine, if you wanna buy energy from us, you must pay in ruble. Uh, if you're a friendly country, you can pay in whatever you want, including gold or Bitcoin or whatever currency you like. And um, I don't know, seems like a natural progression uh, and it's starting to take place in other countries as well. Iranian businesses, there's another one. Iranian businesses get the green light to use crypto for imports. Iran's industry, mines, and trade ministry has approved the use of cryptocurrency for imports into the country and ongoing international trade. Wow. Yeah, pretty interesting. I mean, that's a big deal. You have some thoughts on this, Ant? Not really. I mean, I don't really know enough about 
all the details to really speak on it. I mean, I just saw the headline today, but it's just this thing is marching forward, whether you want these countries. I mean, some people will say like countries, you know, they don't like all these like laws, like, well, here's a law that you can do this or that. But the reality is the world's moving forward with this thing. And we're seeing that. But I got to find out exactly more about it. You know, it's interesting. I've been saying for a long time that when an in, when someone has a need or a necessity for one or many of the properties of Bitcoin, they will purchase BTC at whatever price it is. And it's the same with these with countries. When when a country has the need or necessity for one of the properties of Bitcoin, they're going to use it. Yeah, I I, I agree. Like I I think when countries or people become deplatformed by other countries or people they're left with no alternative at some point but to use that which they are not deplatformed from and bitcoin is this really foundational thing with its permissionless censorship resistant fundamentals that nobody can be deplatformed from i know there's another news article about pakistan issuing digital ids and uh and banning people for doing things as small as heckling, and in a you know they're moving to a cashless society, and they're going to deplatform you by suspending your digital ID if you speak. So what are you left? What choice do you have left? And what choice as mer do merchants have left other than to use a cashless digital non-government ID requiring alternative, which is reliable, which is Bitcoin? It's like it's a, they're forcing people's hands into using it, using this. Go ahead, guys, Ant, Peter. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, you, we've seen and talked about this for a long time that like, you know, the nations, some, which nations would be like first to adopt and, and all the various reasons and some are, you know, incentivized to do so more than others right now. Um, but Iran. I mean, it just, it, it'd be interesting to see like how many of these like nations, uh, you know, that, that the five eyes typically like wouldn't quote, like, want to be like adopting Bitcoin do so before the five eyes finally like get their shit together. You know, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. I think it's also interesting, you know, that the, the agnostic nature of, of Bitcoin and you know people are going to have to get used to the idea that somebody you may not like has equal access to Bitcoin a country you don't like or their policies that you don't like has equal access to this to this technology so it's just it's a really it's a really amazing thing actually Sometimes I feel like we're living in a science fiction novel, you know, where it's like you can see the the governments of the world marching almost, it feels almost inexorably towards this dystopian future, like the Hunger Games. And then you have this freedom money that, that like people can use, you know, and it's it, 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 to get away from that. And uh, it just... 
it's almost like something right out of a science fiction book, but it's happening like right now for real. So in the, you know, to go along with, with, with freedom money, um, and I hope we don't start calling it freedom prize or anything like, but anyways, um, to go along with that in the early eighties, the Nazis, um, sued uh, to March and Skokie and I'm Jewish and I'm not really very enamored with, uh, Nazis, neo-Nazis or, or any racist groups. But the reality is, is that I had to agree that they have every right to march because if we took away their right to march, their right to to demonstrate in public, then who's next? And you know that's one of the one of the beauties of of Bitcoin and one of the beauties of the fact that that nobody controls it and everybody can use it. People have forgotten how important freedom of speech is and how inviolable it needs to remain. And that the whole point of freedom of speech is not letting people who you agree with speak, but letting people who you don't agree with speak as well. And speech is different from violence. Speech is different from force. Speech is ideas. And sometimes ideas are very unpopular. Sometimes they're wrong. But yeah, it's also freedom of assembly. You know, and that goes back to what we were what we were talking about earlier about social consensus. And just because a group wants to do something doesn't mean that everybody has to agree with it. It means they can go do their thing or whatever it is, as long as it's not harming anybody or breaking laws. They can go do their thing and there will be an orphan, an orphan chain, just like we were talking about in the social consensus manner. But, you know, in, in Bitcoin, I think it's there's there's protocol for for uh, for that kind of of uh, uh, for that kind of uh, Tomer, help me out here. What, what exactly are you looking for help with? Uh, you know, well, just the idea the idea of, the, of social consensus and and I mean, we talked about it earlier. I don't know that we need to go back over it. I just can't. I I can't. I don't have the verbiage to accurately sure. describe it. Well, I. I think this notion, like society doesn't need to have consensus on everything, right? It, it's very unhealthy if we all agree on absolutely everything and none of us have any original ideas that are, that are different. The basis of uh, a civilized society is that we actually do tolerate disagreements and tolerate a lack of consensus on a whole lot of things. And that essentially the, we agree there are certain rights that people have and that the violation of those rights is what's offside. And that if we're going to have a government, then the purpose of it is to protect those rights, not to be, not to allow their violation by others and certainly not to violate those rights itself. And, um, and, and that's what takes us to this curious discussion of, of Bitcoin as invention, because it's the first time we actually have a way in a narrow scope of achieving consensus on a particular thing, right? On the particular state of a ledger of money, and we can all agree on it, and we can all agree on it without the use of violence. And in fact, we see that it is, in a sense, a new translation of a particular set of rights. Part of them are rights of self-expression, that anyone can transmit any message, and anyone can validate whether that message is true or not. You know, that's different from, like, if the Nazis march and they say, 
the Jews did X, Y, and Z, which is all made up of phony lies, it's not necessarily easy to validate the truth of any of those statements. But because these are cryptographic mathematical statements that are provable or falsifiable, every statement in Bitcoin, and anyone can say anything. I can say that I'm spending Alex's coins and sending them to myself, but because I won't be able to produce a proof that I own Alex's coins, he doesn't have to worry that I might try to say that because nobody will accept it as true. And so I, I think this is what becomes so extraordinary in this domain, in this realm where we can prove truth about every statement that, that said, we of course say anyone can say anything because we're not worried about any harm that any lie might uh, propagate because it'll just be rejected from the system. And th then we can use these statements as a form of property. And this now gives us property rights that allow us to spend our property, which is just Bitcoin in the case of Bitcoin, spend our property as we choose to without anybody else telling us how to do it one way or the other. So what we, what we ask them to do may be something that our society deems to be illegal. But if we're asking someone to accept Bitcoin to violate somebody else's rights, we need some enforcement mechanism to not do that. But we don't have to worry that someone can violate somebody else's Bitcoin rights because their rights to broadcast, to spend and receive are inviolable and their rights to be free from seniorage or money printing is inviolable. I hope that's not, I, I don't know if that's what you were asking me to help with. That's where I went. That, that's exactly it. And, and fuck the counterfeiters. Where's the tip, Peter? I believe it's uh, 1517. And there was a there was a, a block war. And for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about the stack chain. <clears throat> it's a great fun place to enjoy stacking sats with others, uh, other like-minded Bitcoiners. It's a social, it's a human experiments that, that basically mimics the Bitcoin protocol in all different kinds of ways. And there was a block war at uh, 1492. Uh, that block ended up going back to Spain. Um, it was complete chaos. There was about, I think there was 40,000 cuckbucks dropped in the stack chain in about an hour, less than an hour. Uh, it was pretty amazing. There was two chains going and uh, one chain uh, was longer and, and one and the other chain was orphaned. And then those blocks were incorporated, eventually incorporated into the uh, the new chain because the, the the miners, the block owners, moved those blocks over to the the uh, dominant chain, uh, uh, acquiescing to the social consensus of which chain was going to be the one that was going to uh, continue on. And then, uh, just recently, we had a uh, a side chain being created of uh, stack joins, which are smaller contributions if you can't afford. Um, a large uh, solo mine block, uh, then you can donate what you can, like a daily DCA or, or uh, you know, weekly DCA or whatever. And um, that was also extremely confusing and fun. And it's just a great, uh, it's just a great place. So I think stack chainers have stacked more than or close to, I guess, one and a half million dollars worth of Bitcoin doing this so far? Yeah, um, 1414 was the million dollar mark. 
I don't know what the, and so we are now a um, hundred blocks over that. So I, I don't know if it's a million and a half dollars, but it's, it's, I think we're up in the 56, 57 Bitcoin um, stack. And, and for people who don't, once again, we're not actually, we're purchasing Bitcoin where it's going to self custody. Um, and then what we're doing is we're just posting screenshots of our purchases this is the the we believe this is the longest continuous thread uh, in Twitter history. It is fifteen hundred and um, seven currently fifteen hundred and seventeen um, uh, uh, replies long. So basically, what happens is, is Arizona Hoddle, uh, you know, posted a five dollar purchase of Bitcoin. He said, "Hey, come join me," and the next person replied to that with a picture of a $6 purchase. And then the next person replied to that with a picture of a $7 purchase. And now we are up to 1,517 of those, um, those screenshots in replies in a continuous uh, thread. It's pretty amazing what, what um, has gone on there. A uh, couple of things. I want to, I want to get our listeners' feedback. Um, I want your opinion on this. So <clears throat> when we were at Bit about Block Boom, I talked to Lepard. Um, I've already talked to Ross. Um, I'm sure Foss will agree. We're going to do a thing with Ross, Foss, Lepard, maybe Lavish. I don't know. If there's anybody else you guys think should be in there. Moss. Maybe Moss. Moss is younger. Here's the thing. This is the format. We're, I, I was thinking of calling it, and this is what I want people's opinion on. I was thinking of calling it Cranky Old Bastards of Bitcoin or something like that. I'm, I'm looking for, for names like of, of how we can name the name segment. So shoot me a DM. I'd like to hear your feedback. I, on I, I just, I need to speak with you, Alex, because I'm, I'm doing these time capsule things and I, I wanted both Foss and um, and Booth uh, to be on the the old fart panel of it. So let's just touch base. Yeah, that I that sounds great. That's good. That'll be hilarious. Jeff Booth did a amazing, amazing speech at Bitblock Boom. I'm still kind of like my brain is still going through brain explosions over it. It was that good. It was maybe one of the best speeches I've ever heard in Bitcoin. Um, it's the grain of sand speech. Yeah. I mean, there are a couple of concepts that were super important. One was the grain of sand. One was Galileo. And the other was you, you can't fix the system from within the system. I mean, those three main pillar ideas are just still kind of bouncing around my head. Because they're super, super important. Then they're ideas that I think most people may have heard kind of uh, at one point or another, but then they just quickly forget that that's probably how it's going to play out. It's just fascinating stuff to me. Okay, tonight... We're going to be doing a special episode of Cafe Bitcoin. Um, it's going to be co-hosted with Terrence Yang, who's up here today. He's actually going to be the main host. I'm going to be the co-host. 
And we're going to have Jack Lee in here and um, a couple of gentlemen from their firm. And Terrence, tell us a little bit about what we're going to talk about, because this is going to be pretty awesome. If you want to know sure, about China, the topic these guys are the be, guys. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. The topic will be uh, China and Bitcoin, macro, and energy in China. So all things China. They're located in China, VC firm, and um, have great insights on this. Um, I met Jack through intro by Corey Clipston, our founder and CEO. He thought we would hit it off. Jack, uh, full disclosure, his company's an investor in Swan, and he's become a good friend and client as well. And it should be quite good. We did kind of a practice room a few, uh, several weeks ago, kind of smaller, late night thing, and we're doing another one because of the time zone issues. It'll be at 6 p.m. Pacific time tonight for about an hour, 20 minutes or so. Should be great. Um Love having Alex um, helping out and also producer Jacob, who's the man behind the Swan Bitcoin uh, channel. So it should be this time a professionally done, <laughs> proper kind of official, semi-official Cafe Bitcoin sort of spaces. And uh, Luis Lu will be joining, who's the one who orange pilled Jack. He's not, I don't think, part of Jack's uh, VC firm. Like he's a investor in his own right. But um, yeah, it should be good events. Um, they're, I think, like mostly Taiwan, Taiwanese nationals who are working in China. Um, that's my understanding. Luis might be in Taiwan. So it should be a, um, yeah, come bring your questions, including tough ones, because we want to know more about the world's, well, by GDP, I guess the world's biggest or second biggest economy. Um, and understand it better, what's going on with Bitcoin there, energy issues there, and macro. So please join us. What time is that? 6 p.m. Pacific time, 6 to 7, 20 p.m. Tonight. 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 Yes, tonight. Sorry. Tonight, tonight, or tomorrow, tonight? Like tonight. Tonight, Pacific tonight. time. Like in like, 11 hours or 10 and a half hours. Yeah, soon, exactly. Soon, soon. Yeah. I'll, I'll post something in the master. That's tomorrow for probably. <laughs> yes, tomorrow their time, tonight our time, our U.S. time. Hey, Alex, I just saw a tweet you posted about uh, some uh, ice sheet in Greenland that, that like accumulated like gigatons of mass. Do you know a little more about that? I actually don't. I just thought it was a fascinating tweet. Uh, so apparently the, the Greenland ice sheet has gained seven gigatons of mass in just one day yesterday the largest gain ever recorded during the summer um let's see let me see if i can pull this up hold on what the fuck does that even mean <laughs> 320 <laughs> gigatons i mean come on man yeah this thing is not coming up so if anybody else finds any other information about that i'm fascinated to know more all I know is, what about this climate crisis, huh? Mm, mm, mm. Did did a bunch of elephants just decide to set foot on uh, on Greenland? I mean, come on, man. What 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 is it? What can we put a gigaton into? I mean, come on, man. This is like this is like uh, a trillion. I just have to. I can't concede it. 
Yeah, I think so a like, gigaton is a trillion pounds or two trillion pounds. Love to know how they measure it. <laughs> Must be rise in sea level. Oh no, Greenland's not. Uh, Greenland's on uh, on dirt, so I guess that doesn't that doesn't work. It might have been just satellite imagery and. Um... Or maybe some like sonar, like they fly over the cap and they just like, or the ice sheet and they, they have LIDAR and it penetrates the ice and they can measure the density of the ice. And so maybe that's how they came about that number. Is there really somebody out there that believes that physics would allow for in one day that amount of additional tonnage to be added to ice? It must be that they measure that in one day. Like it's not. I, I don't believe that that that's possible, uh, Jim. Uh, I, I think it's just maybe the they measure that in one day. I saw the tweet, but I, I kind of want to like dig into it because I saw a report today that um, it was just like fear mongering about like the melting ice. They they were saying that like the there was so much uh, ice melt recently that it, it like the sea levels were gonna <laughs> rise like ten inches. Well, if you go, I mean, I mean, this has been going on for decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, where where if you actually study uh, the history of it, and and you've seen how many times it's been declared an emergency. I mean, look, the bottom line is there are a certain number of human beings that are easily controlled by fear, and uh, that's just one of the things. You know, it's like you either go to war or you cause fear some other way, whether it's a scamdemic or a climate crisis or a whatever. You gotta get yeah, I mean, or, an energy, or an energy crisis. Energy yeah. crisis. Well, I don't know if that's okay. Look, that that's more serious than just spinning up fear because with energy crisis also comes famine and that's not good. And transfer of wealth. And transfer of wealth, yes. Yeah, Europe is pretty see. screwed. Certainly heading into interesting times. I mean, humans are going to adapt. I, I, this is the this is the part that I find really interesting. It's like <laughs> these. You have the Klaus Schwab, right? Which is like the the caricature of a of a supervillain. It doesn't get any more supervillainy than that, right? And, <laughs> Like they come up with all these plans and like, it's so interesting to me how they're like, okay, we do this, 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 and this. And I mean, it's like, it always blows up. It's, it's, I mean, you could, you could probably make a cartoon out of it at this point. Always blows up. I hope it keeps blowing up because screw those guys. Happy birthday, Dr. Jeff. Good morning. Hey, morning, Alex. Morning, everybody. Hope y'all are doing well. Hey, Alex, while well, you got a moment here of silence, can I ask you real quick, you had mentioned something when I just jumped on about a bunch of old guys getting together. I obviously qualify, but uh, what about some older, more mature women? There's a few of them in the space. I uh, haven't, haven't seen any of that get the, organized. The qualifier really is not just being old. Because uh, yeah, was, I wasn't sure. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just looking for a name. Really, what we want to do is get some of the best kind of macro guys together. We were just talking about you, Dr. Jeff. We're gonna do, um, we're gonna do a a, a show 
with your hopefully with you jeff if you if you want to be there and then um greg foss larry lapard james lavish probably um i don't know if we want to include anybody else maybe maybe not i'm not sure yet but we're looking for names of the of the segment you don't have to be a hoodie wearing super super coder to understand bitcoin So we're not going to call it Bitcoin Boomers then, if that's not a I like requirement. Don't you think that has a negative connotation, though? I feel like it kind of does. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I feel like I'm a little triggered every time I hear Boomer. The term I Boomer thought, was created uh, as, a, as a pejorative. Has... It was pejorative in nature. So whether you want to embrace that or not, I guess that's up to you. But I don't like it. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's that whole, like who started using that at first? It was really young people. What does that mean? Well, it's kind it was, of like a, it, it, it's it was, a slam on, on old people, right? Like you, we shouldn't have to listen to you guys because you don't know what the hell you're doing because you're old. It's so funny because boomer comes from baby boomer when they were considered all these young babies. And now time yeah. enough has passed that boomer means an old, nobody calls them a baby boomer anymore. They're old boomers. Yeah, but Tomer, yeah. that's because we managed to fuck everything up. That's it. There's several punk bands from like the late '80s, early '90s that used to, you know, sling that word around in the context of how everything was so fucked up. Well, we're at the time in history when the generation that was called the baby boom generation from 1946 to 1964 is now mostly in charge of the world. And because a lot of them are parasites, yeah, boomer is a negative term. It was just meant to denote a, a generation of people that were born because a lot of people came back from World War II and had a lot of fun with their wives that they missed. I mean, they are boomers, though. And like Gary Leyland has a show, I believe, called Bitcoin for Boomers. I've done rooms called Bitcoin for Boomers on Clubhouse and I think Spaces. People I, guess the, I guess the reason I don't like it from a pejorative sense is, is it's kind of designed to tell young people, you don't have to listen to your elders. These people are idiots. And um, oh, I don't, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't like that to keep out young people because we wanted the boomers to actually have a chance to ask their often mm. not very tech savvy questions. So yeah, it's a different. Mm. Okay, fair. But it's also if you if you label something like that, it's also um, possibly going to make it make it not inclusive. So a lot of people will shun that because of the title. They don't want to be in a room full of boomers. Yeah. Uh, how about That's the true. Bitcoin Elder Council? Don't get down now. That's a better phrasing because, uh, you know, as much as there's a lot of idiot brainwashed boomers They're out there. I think it's a, me and Walton and TC all grown up. There's, all, the there's elder, also the Elder Council. We need to get you guys some fancy robes scepters and shit. Like, you know, and then you can well, walk around. You, you have to have a very specific walk where your back is very straight and stiff, like you have a broomstick up your butt. And then you can sprinkle some water around and you can say, let the council begin. <laughs> um, I just wanted to say there's a lot of wisdom in the boomer generation. Some of the people are very smart, as you highlighted. Some of these macro guys is who you want to talk to. And they're, they happen to be older because they've lived long enough to see some stuff. So as much as we want to put down the boomer generation, 
not everybody in it is a bad actor. They're also rich enough to be smart, many of them, due to compounding and being born in the right generation, so to speak. Yeah, and it's important It's important to um, point out that age and wisdom do not always go together, but some guys who are older have a lot of wisdom, and in my opinion, it's probably a good idea to listen to them on certain things. It, it's also important to realize that um, just because you're old doesn't mean that you can't learn new tricks because I was able to learn about Bitcoin. I understand what's going on here. Me too. Both very good points. Some boomers should be listened to very closely and others still can learn. And most of the rest of them are, are going to die clueless. <laughs> Jeff, we haven't heard any, uh, overviews from you lately you want to give us an overview of what you see going on in the markets today like okay before before you do that i don't know if it was yesterday or the day before or whatever um there's this kind of um confluence of events that appears we may be heading towards more great depression kind of stuff uh what do you what do you think about all that <laughs> Uh, man, I mean, it's an easy it, question, right? Like very simple, just no, nothing complex about that. Just go. It, it, it looks terrible and it's, it, and it, and the fed wants it to be even more terrible than it looks. So, I mean, I don't even know what to say. It's just, it's terrible out there. Like it's it, businesses, <laughs> everything is bad. Um, I think the only good thing is I think that inflation will start coming down. If you just think about supply demand curves, supply chains are starting to ease up a bit. Um, that has the effect of dropping prices down. And then at the same time, the Fed is destroying demand. Uh, when you couple those together, prices will come down. Um, so that's the, that's the up, that's like the only uh, silver lining to an otherwise really dark, stormy, terrible looking uh, future that we have here. So like in the, you know, near to midterm. So basically weeks, months, uh, maybe even quarters. I think it's just uh, exceedingly ugly out there, especially for risk assets. So, I mean, I'm heavily shorting um, the equities markets, especially NASDAQ, those kind of things. I think we have much further to fall here before this is over. I think we're going to see serious dollar strength in the short term. Uh, we'll probably see Bitcoin weakness in the short term. I love that combo, by the way. That's the ultimate pairs combo, right? You take advantage of a strong dollar and buy weak Bitcoin because over the long run, the dollar is trending towards zero value. And over the long term, Bitcoin is trending toward infinite value. And that's not hyperbole, it just is um, because of their monetary properties. And so you want to take advantage of short term time periods where the dollar is strong and Bitcoin is weak and you make the obvious transfer. Uh, so anyways, that, that's how I look at it. But I just say kind of buckle up, mentally prepare for things getting worse. I think the next thing we're going to see and you're going to start hearing uh, people talk about in the headlines is I think unemployment starts to rise as well. So prices will yeah. come down. But at the same time, we're going to see unemployment rise. That sucks, right? That's exactly what the Fed wants. They're like cheering for that. But that means real regular people are losing their jobs and, and they're losing them in mm -hmm. droves. Uh, so it's going to get ugly here before it gets better. Right. So a lot of businesses basically failing a lot of people losing their jobs that kind of thing yeah absolutely it's going to be rough and and it's also there's not going to be that next job for somebody just to be able to go grab that that's right now if you lose your job or if or 
previously, if you've lost your job or if you are employed, you can very easily move to another position, but that's going to go away. Are we going to 16K Bitcoin, Jeff? We could. I mean, honestly, it can do anything. I just don't really care about price predictions so much. It's kind of more what's the general direction. Uh, you know, what's the major vibe out there? The major vibe is ugliness. And so risk is kind of um, pointed downwards in the sh in the near term. And so I just think, you know, get ready for that. It's still a sat stacker's paradise throughout. I think all of 22 will be like that. Um, so keep stacking sats hard. Don't give up your day job unless you get fired. Like keep keep earning fiat and then trans and then uh, you know um, exchange it for for sound money that is Bitcoin. Um, and, uh, and just you got to get through this period. And if you have neighbors who are in trouble, help your neighbors. And uh, and we got to get through this together and hopefully be better on the other side of it. Yeah, I don't. I, Bitcoin price going down does not make me sad. I know it makes a lot of people sad. Not me. Like. Uh, this all of this in this re in this area right here i'm all about that let's go stack 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 no 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 it's a gift to me it's a gift it's like anything at these levels is a gift i'm glad you feel that way alex because it feels like it'll be here for a while all right let's go now's the time well, Alex, it just went on sale the last hour. Another two point three percent drop, below uh, twenty again. Oh, I'm 19s. watching it. I'm watching. Okay, it. sorry. <laughs> well, the reason that I'm watching it is, is we have clients with tons of dry powder on platform right now, that are like, "Let's go, <laughs> let's go." Little piece of trivia: like Swan has more per client revenue than coinbase you guys know that you know why that is because your clients are all boomers i think it's because our clients are bitcoiners could be wrong about that nice pivot alex no i'm serious you know like there's a lot of companies that are suffering hard right now like it's not just a bear, like some companies are starting to refer this, <clears throat> I'm talking about in the industry, are starting to refer to this period as more, more of a crypto winner kind of a period. And uh, they're hurting, but Swan's been doing pretty good. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, our clients are Bitcoiners. Price goes down, back up the truck. I mean, they understand what this thing is. And it's kind of like, here's another interesting phenomenon. A lot of our clients will come in and they're not like Bitcoiners when they come in. But over time, the longer that they're Swan clients, they become Bitcoiners. <laughs> like <laughs> I have clients say, hey, yeah, we're selling all of our Ethereum positions and we're moving into Bitcoin instead. Because they, you know, they just... Over time, if you're exposed to the truth, eventually it starts seeping in there. Which is which is why Bitcoin Cafe or Cafe Bitcoin is so important because you know I you know that I've been here for a long time and this has been part of my my orange pilling and my education has been uh, Cafe Bitcoin. 
Yeah, I'd like to say I think what you guys do every day is invaluable to people that are trying to find a signal out here. I mean, any random day they could pick up just that one piece of information that helps them get it, you know, puts them over the finish line and they they see the truth, you know. So the fact that we're all here helping all the listeners every day is really valuable service you guys are helping with here. And I appreciate you letting me come up and talk. So kudos hey, to everybody. Hey, Jim, can I ask you a question? You're yeah, of course. You're you're a custom home builder, yeah. Correct. Tell me a couple things. How are um, the prices of materials where you are? Are they starting to come down? And then two, uh, what's demand like among buyers? Is that starting to dry up at all, or or what have you noticed as a builder? Ah, very interesting. Yes, prices have come down. They peaked about a year ago, maybe, but some prices are still high, and we're definitely seeing random shortages in in random things um for the most part most of the stuff i need is still available uh slower delivery times because of supply chain issues demand so i build homes but i also do plenty of renovation on existing homes and you know new kitchens or even just you know a paint job if somebody needs it and so unfortunately for anybody out there that owns a home there's constant work that's needed so that part of my business has not slowed down I had a guy wanted me to build him a new house this fall and he put it on hold. So that was a big project that is now on the back burner. Um, there's, I luckily still have plenty of work to do, but that one project, that brand new home is now not getting built. And so when I see it from that perspective, yeah, it might be slowing down, you know, new home building. And I'm not in that big, you know, market, but just me directly, my, my little business. Uh, yeah. It's uh, there's a slowdown, at least from what I could see. But but the maintenance business, the uh, the repair, the you know that kind of stuff, that never goes away. I never slow down. I'm still getting. I get more calls all the time for somebody that needs something. So for those people that can afford to maintain their homes, uh, the construction business is not going anywhere anytime soon. But the larger home building industry, I can see that definitely slowing down. That's helpful, Jim. Thanks. Yeah, and I expect the maintenance side of, of work to actually increase, right, as people get, uh, as they tighten their belts more and more instead of building new houses, uh, they're going to try to fix what they have. Same with the auto industry, right? You, you don't go out and buy new cars, but you, you fix what you have and you try to make it work for a little longer. I think that's absolutely going to happen. And so anybody that's in construction that maintains buildings, they're not going to be out of work. Um, but, yeah, the new the new stuff, I could definitely see that slowing down. Yep. So two, two things anecdotally. One, um, my uh, friend of mine that I've known for 35 years uh, is a site supervisor for um, ultra wealthy uh, home building. And they had a client last week who said that uh, they had lost $35 million in a week and they were putting their project on hold. Um, and then also yesterday I was in another space uh, and uh, one of the individuals was talking about his uh, auto uh, mechanic uh, business. He has a, a chain of, uh, of uh, garages. And he said that people are now coming in and they are declining to do work um, that he would consider uh, red alert work. So safety work, they're declining to do it and they're asking how long they can put it off. So those are anecdotal, but I, you know, I think we're going to hear more of this anecdotal evidence um, as time goes on. That was you, Alex. You lost thirty-five million dollars last year. <laughs> uh, no, that wasn't me. I have a feeling the guy that wanted to build the house that he he said he wanted me to build it was about it was going to cost about a million bucks to build it. 
I have a feeling his wherever that money was parked is no longer worth as much, and that's probably why he's holding back, just like what Peter said about somebody lost a bunch of money. You know, essentially on paper, if it's down in value, you don't have it there to spend anymore. So I'm, I'm thinking that's what this guy's story is. He says he's putting it off for a year. Maybe he's hoping his value will return. I don't know. So hard to, hard to tell. I mean, just think about, you know, your own finances and yourself. And, you know, if you have kids and you give your kids a, an allowance or, you know, however that works or you buy things for them. When when things are good, when the money is when the money on paper looks good, when when your account looks fat, you know, you're willing to spend some money. But as soon as as soon as that account starts going down in value, you, you kind of look at it and you go, well, you know, maybe we maybe we can't spend this money here. Maybe we can't spend that money there. You become I, I at least become um, much less uh, ready to uh, part with uh, my value. Hey, I'm in the I'm, I'm in the architecture uh, business. I'm, I'm an architect, and um, recently I started applying for jobs remotely. And it seems that Texas and Florida have like this massive like backlog of construction, and and all these companies are like like aggressively hiring people. Uh, so definitely there are. So I, I feel like those two states were the ones that kind of got the little like the 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 longer end of the stick on on the COVID situation. So I feel like. There's there's a lot of pent up demand for building construction in Florida and in Texas, so it's kind of like a inside a half there. I don't know about all the other states. I feel like here in Kansas City things are slowing down a little bit in the segment, like in construction. I saw an article that said that that um, sales have contracted nationwide by fifty one percent, and there's currently eleven months of inventory. Like the you know the timeline at the current rate of sales is, uh, keeps expanding. And my understanding where I am in New York is that prices have definitely topped probably a year ago or sometime last year. And uh, from what I hear from the real estate people I know, there's definitely less demand. Uh, people are struggling; they're feeling it. And I can see home prices going down. You know, supply and demand. Maybe we'll find a new level where everything starts working smooth again. Hard to say, but. It definitely feels like a turnaround. Is this the soft landing that uh, <laughs> they were they were trying to achieve? Because I, I mean, I still see a lot of you know, like business activity, like economic activity. Every time I go out, there's tons of people everywhere spending money. I'm just like, it's either the fact that there's tons of just you know cash still flowing around. Yeah, but credit credit card debt is skyrocketing. Oh, right yeah. uh, okay, okay. Oh, that's awful. But yeah, the confidence seems to continue, and confidence is a big part of the economy. Obviously, there are structural and fundamental issues with inflation and supply chain and all that stuff. Energy being a big one. But yeah, the like there's this guy who's still tweeting, even though we talked about this yesterday, but this guy, Jordan Schechtel, was saying that the average German is on track to pay $1,000 or $3,000 a month in electricity bills for a 2,500-square-foot home. So it's bullshit, not going to happen. We already went through this yesterday, right? Where you guys Yeah, we were. have Jacob up here who is yeah, he's who is or was and yeah he's still in the audience I'm, I'm throwing you an invite if you want to come up jacob he he uh 
works in the energy industry in Germany, and he set us all straight yesterday. It was really good. I had a question for Dr. Jeff, if he if he might have a perspective on this. Um, it feels like in my area where I live, I happen to live very close to New York City, and it feels like life as normal for the most part. There's tons of groceries in the store. Most shelves are fine. People seem busy working. Um, but I wonder if it's just because I'm so close to a metropolitan area and would our area economically feel downturns a little slower than other parts? And I was just wondering if he actually knows of disparities between different parts of the world or this country where some people are feeling it sooner than others. Because it generally I don't feel it uh, in life, but in my own industry, I'm noticing some stuff. I'm just, just wondering if I'm missing something or if it's going to hit this area later uh, for some economic reason, like because we're so close to New York City. Yeah, Jim, that's that's great. Well, there, there are definite disparities, right? So so we have it bad here in the U.S. It's actually significantly worse right now in Europe uh, with their energy crisis going on on top of their headed into a recession. Their consumer confidence is even worse uh, than here in the U.S. They're basically at all time lows. Manufacturing is just getting decimated over there. Uh, people are really struggling. And they're just again, they're just still at the start of this where we're, you know, people talking about landings and soft landings. We're, we're not we're still in the clouds like going through turbulence right now we haven't hit our landing and it's not going to be soft um in the u.s and the way recessions work in general is is they work based on uh socioeconomic layers so so the poorest people feel it first right they feel the high prices they're the ones that they literally can't afford the gasoline to go drive to their job um, they have to pick up a second job maybe a third job those kind of things they can't afford groceries anymore so they've already been feeling it they're already suffering um, but it's they're starting to see the effects in the middle classes now. Uh, what's left of the middle class, anyways? Um, those people they start they get hit with sort of a wealth effect because they have investments, uh, and those things are down substantially. The value of their house is down at, uh, somewhat. It, it still has more to go, but so they feel poor. So what do they do? They take less vacations if they have a you know vacation time at their decent job uh, instead of going somewhere, flying somewhere. Uh, they start doing staycations. You know, they buy generic foods instead of the name brand kind of stuff. Um, so the middle classes are starting to feel that. And, and Jim, you, if you work on kind of higher end houses, you know, you're, you're among like the wealthy folks around. So they still haven't really felt the effects of this yet. And obviously they don't. They're the most shielded from it because they have substantial savings. They have a lot of assets. Uh, but the wealth effect is going to be massive for them as well. Uh, so you just see kind of the high end stuff come down. So high end retailers, high end, uh, home builders, um, you know, housing prices that would sell for a hundred million dollars in, in peak fiat bubbles, um, that just drops way down like 80%. Um, and so they're going to feel it as well, but, but they, they're the last to feel it obviously because they have the biggest moats of, of wealth around them. So I have a question for all the doomers. Uh, what would, how, how would you steel man the other side or can you? Because I can, I can say, I can very easily say all the arguments you're saying about as well as you guys, which is like, it's a disaster, everything, it's a supply chain issue, energy is going through the roof in Europe, that's going to spread, right, their tip of the spear is going to spread all over the place, including in the US, and we'll be paying $3,000 a month for the average home and electricity and so forth this winter, winter is coming. Right, printer is coming, all that stuff. How would you guys steal man the other side? 
So based on what you're bringing up, Terrence, like, you know, the, the energy issue could obviously switch overnight, right? They could, the Europe, the European Union could, could forge some deal with Russia, the, the Russia and Ukraine war, they could say, we, we have a peace treaty today. Uh, and tomorrow, we're going to restore all of our, you know, uh, gas and energy supplies to Europe, and energy prices would immediately plummet, uh, and people would be happy again. So those kind of they might plummet just from um, lack of demand. If yeah, prices well, that's really are three thousand dollars a month for a twenty-five hundred uh, square foot apartment in the winter. I would think that a lot of Germans would a leave and go someplace much cheaper, maybe Spain or Portugal for the winter or Miami. And then B, um, they will just wear sweaters and parkas at home. It sucks, but they might do it. Some well, will die. That'll that's suck. The, but. That's the more serious issue too, Terrence, what you're talking about. Like we could see a narrative change, but the real story that I see coming, the reason why it's hard for me to steal man a better side, we're going to see prices plummet and demand plummet, but that's because we're going to be heading into a massive worldwide recession. Like the industry is going to be shutting we, down. We kind of need one though, don't we? Because so, since 2008, we've been printing forever, especially since 2020. So we've been in this massive bubble that we all were seeing not long ago was unsustainable. So why would we think that that's necessarily a bad thing when we'd had overconsumption? of malinvestment and massive you want to you want to hear an interesting you want to hear an interesting indicator that i learned on my trip out to mccall idaho um one of these guys that i was hanging out with who's a, a an og bitcoiner extremely wealthy dude now because he was buying bitcoin hand over fist with everything he could back in 2014 but anyway he's like watch the price of malibu stock and by malibu i mean the 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 boat company that they make uh ski boats or wake boats he's like watch that that'll be a pretty good indicator of what the wealthy are buying or not buying um i would like to get uh jacob's views here jacob debus is our now our resident uh correspondent and expert on energy over in europe good morning jacob yeah <laughs> I've good claimed, morning I, i've claimed yeah. you man yeah well um not, not technically an expert. I just started working there, so um, there could I could make mistakes, and you know, like um, not everything. Mm. You cannot know everything. Um, when it comes to energy, um, I wanted to throw in something interesting. I recently had a discussion about. Um, you know, um, right now we have this, let's say, shock on the system uh, in which prices really increase, and I also agree that this basically takes away wealth of the middle class. Um, but I recently had a discussion with like one of the top leading person in Siemens. And um, this person also told me um, that also, or it was more like a question, but um, yeah, maybe this question also goes to the macro guys in here because that's not technically my field, but imagine like the business adapts to, um, or somehow manages to adapt to like the increasing costs um, that are connected to energy. And then suddenly, it could be leverage over like taxes that you can lower on energy, but it could also be like to changing geopolitics that energy suddenly drops massively. This could like be the second step because this would then be a deflationary shock to the system suddenly. So this is also a threat that would highly stress central bank policy because first they need to somehow get inflation under control and then suddenly you have like a deflationary shock 
when, for example, oil and other energy prices drop. So there's also a question of someone here um, in a macro view has something to add to this or an opinion. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll take that, Jacob, and tie it into Terence uh, Terence's point, which are, which are which is very valid. Like th this is a healthy reset if you look at it from kind of a long term perspective, right? The huge downside of a credit based fiat system is that we have massive booms and busts, and we we just got through a massive boom phase that ended at the uh, near the end of 2021, and now we're going through the reset phase. So from a, from a you know a um, a conceptual view, this is very healthy. From a practical view, it totally sucks, right? I mean, it sucks because people are going to go be out of work, are going to lose money, people are going to die in Europe because they're, you know, unless things change, they're not going to be able to uh, afford heating uh, of their homes. Uh, you know, they're not going to be able to have food. Kids are going to starve. It's terrible. It's terrible to live through. And these are what I hate about the fiat system. Uh, you have these kind of unnecessary booms and busts that are uh, significantly amplified uh, because of how the system works, the credit-based system. Banks right now should be actually adding liquidity, but instead they're tightening up and they're shoring up their own defensives, uh, defenses to survive. Um, and so that actually amplifies the move down. It amplifies the bust. Just like in the boom cycles, banks are supposed to be putting a rain. They're supposed to be taking away the punch bowl, but instead they add to it. They add to credit. They loosen credit because they want to make as, as much profits as possible. So they're doing exactly the opposite of what they're kind of supposed to do uh, as the guardians of the economy. Uh, central banks as well, they're complicit in all of this. Um, and so this is what is terrible about the system. This is why I, this is actually the main reason why I'm such a huge proponent of a Bitcoin standard, uh, because we're not on a fiat credit-based system anymore. We'll be on a pro productivity-based system that advances culture kind of in a more reasonable manner uh, without the huge boom and bust cycles. So it's very different. So anyways, the reset is healthy. It's necessary. Uh, if, if you're, you know, if you're a believer in the Keynesian economic experiment, um, I, I would say we don't need to be doing this. It puts it, it adds needless suffering to the human race, and I can't stand it personally. But yes, it's necessary, and it will be healthy once we're we're through it and on the other side of it. Um, so I, I agree with all that, except I don't think you need to be a Keynesian to um, think that this is healthy. It's just ridiculous the amount that we are in a massive asset bubble for a long time. Real estate prices were through the roof. And uh, in some in some ways, at least for those who are experiencing a more moderate reset, this is kind of a welcome thing, I would think. Jacob, I want to ask you about the tweet that Phil Pals is my pal, hilarious, by the way, Phil, shared in the nest. Is this bullshit or not? What is the price of electricity in Germany where you are? Is it really 660 euros per megawatt hour? Because that's what it's saying, Electric, electricity prices for the day ahead, August 31st. Is that bullshit or that's correct? Um, yeah, I, I already elaborated on this a little bit yesterday. I but know, in, but in energy I don't think Phil was here and some audience <laughs> okay. people. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Twice. Um, um, the thing is, in energy markets, you have different contracts and it depends on the urgency, so to say, when you need the energy. So, um, you know, in intraday, you have different prices than, for example, for a year ahead. And therefore, um, this price... So this is like a day ahead. Are you seeing yeah. 660? So what is that about? And who's yeah. paying 660 and, besides and actually, traders? Sorry, yeah, actually, 660 already is cheaper 
than yesterday. And this is due to the intervention or talks about intervention from, um, you know, von der Leyen from EU level, because the whole um, European electricity markets um, are, are synchronized, so to say. And the basic concept is you add up all the means of production of energy and they have different costs. For example, solar is cheaper than gas. And then you apply the price of the most expensive means of production of energy to all other production as well. So you have like a synchronized price for um, all, all the market. And therefore, um, the price explosion was due to the system. And we had to substitute a lot of electricity that was missing because France shut down their nuclear power plants or half of their nuclear power plants due to, yeah, um, basically maintenance. And therefore, um, we had to substitute a lot of production with gas and gas was very expensive. And therefore, the price, synchronized price for all forms of production was very expensive. And now they're talking on your level about maybe discoupling, um, you know, production of gas and the rest of the market. And just this talk about this already dropped. So um, therefore, this price is already cheaper. And also, you cannot um, say, okay, this is 600 something euro per megawatt in the day ahead and apply to the whole electricity bill because this is just a fraction of the electricity that you need to buy. And it's basically, you do a calculation ahead of what you will need in the next year and you try to match it with your infrastructure and the difference of your miscalculation you buy. And this is like, or sell. And this is um, the price for this um, small margin that you need to, um, to compensate your differences in your uh, ahead calculation. So you cannot apply it to the whole electricity. And on a private level, you have to make the distinction between business and private person. And I personally have no increase whatsoever because um, my electricity bill is a contract with my city and they need some time to increase the contract because it's like for- yeah, the price doesn't change, but year to year, right? So you're really not impacted. You're still in the same contract. It won't change until you, your contract expires and then it'll be for one year, essentially. Correct. Or maybe they pull something because they have some special things in their contract due to extraordinary circumstances or something. But basically, right now, I don't pay more. But also, I don't pay more this month for gas. But they have this um, law um, that next month you need to pay extra for gas. And also this systemic thing okay. that you have this contract means that um, the risk, the counterparty risk is with like the cities and the big corporations like Wien Energy. And yesterday also was Uniper. Wien Energy wanted 1.7 billion in aid, which is now up to 4 billion, I think. And Uniper yesterday said they also wow. need four billion. So what I mentioned yesterday that soon the next big companies will follow. Uniper already got a bailout, and now they they need a second bailout, which is incredible. Yeah. All right, Jacob. Okay, thanks. So real quick, real quick, Jacob. What percent of Germans are the Germany German economy is paying six sixty two a day? It's retail for, versus for... wholesale markets, Terence. I, I'm asking Jacob, is is retail? Yeah. Who is retail? Okay, so to summarize, this price 
is not what you pay as a private person. This price is like on the exchange directly and on the exchange only big corporations and trading um, uh -huh. business that are specialized in this trading um, of an energy are participating. So you don't, your, your electricity cost does not change according to the daily changes on, on electricity markets. You have those contracts and the counterparty risk lies with your city and your city then has like contract with a, a big energy um, supplier for this specific part of the country. And this energy supplier then has its own infrastructure, which um, personally they try to, to manage and optimize and the difference they buy from European markets. And so it's like more like a, imagine like a pyramid structure and you're like not affected if something changes directly. It takes time to trickle down, so to say. All right. How much um, time? Stop. We need to move on. <laughs> uh, All right. Because lots of like hands in up. the U.S., I'll just make this quick point. In the U.S., gas prices, right? Retail is more expensive. The price per barrel of oil is cheaper, you know, per gallon than the gas you pay at the gas station. So, um, and the gas prices have come down. So if in Europe, it sounds like it's reversed because of this trading thing, which I'm not quite getting where um, wholesale is more expensive than retail. All right. I'm sure we'll revisit the topic. Jacob, appreciate you coming up uh, and sharing what you know. We do have to move on though. We need to hit some announcements. We've also got a featured guest today, uh, Stefan Kinsella, uh, which we will be moving to here Next, Tomer, if you would like to go, then Bain, make it, uh, if you can Great. be brief, let's Topic do that quick. and then we'll go. I, I just, um, I, I've studied a lot of this stuff in the, in the past and this is a microeconomics issue, not a macroeconomics issue. There's macro, <laughs> there's macro, there's uh, geopolitical events that are driving the microeconomic issues. And just the microeconomic issues, people talk about supply curves and you may have seen them. It's like more shit will get supplied at a higher price. And what's, what's actually happened is uh, what happens is uh, the shape of a supply curve is all the different producers with how the, the width of each bar is how much they can produce. And the price that they offer it at is the price at which they're profitable. They stop producing energy or whatever it is that they're supplying when they're unprofitable. And what we've seen is this curtailment of supply that wasn't, that was uh, geopolitical. And when the geopolitical curtailment of supply comes down the giant chunks of the supply curve for energy are eliminated and everything shifts to up and to the left and so now we're seeing the demand curve for energy meet the supply curve at a much higher price point the solution is getting cheap sources of electricity online and and the reason that terence is asking these questions is because consumers don't buy at it's not like gasoline that you're buying at the pump on the day that it ships after it's, it's refined all of these electrical things are securitized in in long-term futures and derivatives contracts to provide stability uh, in price. But uh, but the fundamental problem is if they if Europe doesn't get its energy supply problem fixed, those prices are are going to work their way through the duration of the uh, derivative instruments, and then consumers will be facing this. Now, I don't think that's going to happen because. <laughs> there's lots of ways to solve energy production problems. So that's just a little thought on it. I'm sorry if it's boring. All right. Thanks for the input, T-Bain. Let's hear from you and then we're going to hit announcements. Um, and then 
move on with our featured guest. Go ahead, T-Pain. Yeah, just a, a couple quick statements here. So energy poverty is economic poverty. And I think we've only really seen widespread energy shortages um, recently, at least that I've seen, has been that uh, big major blackout in Texas in the winter of 2021 in February. And officially, according to the te Texas state level of uh, statistics, 246 Texans lost their lives due to that winter storm and the subsequent energy shortages. The, and there were there were rolling blackouts. The rolling blackouts caused the natural gas infrastructure to come offline. And um, a, allegedly there was over $200 billion in property damage along with these 250 deaths. So I think, uh, and, and, and the Texas population is only about a third of the German population, you know, in terms of like uh, uh, count. And so I think, uh, I think people are really underestimating what these um, energy shortages can can have on on civilization going forward, I think it's uh, dire times. Those are my comments. All right. Well, we will certainly see. I hope it's better than that. But um, I mean, I guess we'll, we'll see how it plays out. Um, you have been listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Good morning and welcome. If you've never been here before, we do talk about Bitcoin here. We all obviously talk a lot about a lot of other subjects, macroeconomics, et cetera, monetary history, monetary theory, a lot of topics having to do with freedom because of Bitcoiners or people who are interested in Bitcoin many times are also very interested in freedom. Um, great place for your morning news, great place to learn about Bitcoin. This is also a podcast up on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple. You can throw me or Swan Bitcoin a follow to be notified of when those drop. The Pacific Bitcoin Conference is coming up in November. It's going to be November 10th and 11th, Santa Monica, California, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Pacific Bitcoin is deeply dedicated to helping more Bitcoiners achieve financial freedom with Bitcoin. And it's going to be a lot of fun. You can go to PacificBitcoin.com uh, to buy your ticket. <clears throat> by the way, the prices just went up this last week, right before the weekend. If you use promo code CAFE, all caps, C-A-F-E, you will get 30% off. I don't know how long that's going to last. Um, but I did test it this morning and that is working. So if you still haven't bought your tickets, promo code CAFE for 30% off. And then finally, I work with Swan Bitcoin. If you don't want to know more about Swan, you can shoot me a DM. You can shoot Terrence a DM too. We both work in Swan Private. Happy to help you. We have the Swan IRA. Uh, we have Swan Private, which is designed for high net worth, ultra high net worth clients. We have uh, business onboarding. If you have a business and you want to put Bitcoin on your balance sheet, or if you want to provide Bitcoin to your employees as a benefit. We have this thing called the Bitcoin benefit plan designed to do exactly that. We also take customers for all around the world. You don't have to be from the United States to work with Swan Bitcoin. We have clients from all over the place and we are happy to help you. Righty. All that being said, um, I would like to welcome up Stefan Kinsella. Good morning, Stefan. How are you doing? Good morning. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Glad uh, to do just it. a little, some brief info about Stefan, an American intellectual property lawyer, author, and deontological anarcho capitalist. I'd like to know more about that because I'm not quite sure what it means. But uh, his legal works have been published in the Oxford University Press, uh, Oceana, Mises Institute, etc. Uh, was recently on the Breedlove Show. 
And uh, my producer, Jacob, has said really great things about you, Stefan. I haven't had a chance to listen to that whole podcast, but uh, apparently it was pretty damn good. Yeah, we did part two yesterday, actually. It's not out yet, but yeah, we did part two. Follow up. We'll probably do many more parts. Right on. Um, and by the way, so, I've, never, I've never referred to myself as a deontological <laughs> uh, theorist. Someone else must have written that. Uh, what they mean by that, if you're curious, is um, um, there's like two main ways people try to argue for the, the policies that they prefer, the laws. Uh, one is sort of what's called utilitarian or consequentialist, like you just basically favor a law that gets the best results for the most people. And the other is, de- is called deontological, which basically just means you, you do it in accordance with some kind of principle. Like uh, you think it's just it's just wrong for people to commit murder. So you, you're for a law against murder, not because you think it generates the greatest good for everyone, but because you think it's inherently immoral or wrong. So those are those, that's what that word de- deontology means, which I did not select, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I'm looking at your... Um your Amazon author profile. And you appear to be a pretty prolific writer. Uh, yeah, I've written a good deal. I've been an attorney since uh, 1992, patent attorney, and I've uh, written a good deal on law itself, like uh, writings for other lawyers, most of that for profit. Well, some of it for profit. And then uh, as a libertarian and Austrian um, economics student, I've written a lot of legal theory and rights theory from that perspective too, um, in, in books and in, uh, various journals. So are you a Bitcoiner? Absolutely. I, I got interested in Bitcoin from, Oh, I was interested in it from 2011 or so. Uh, and, um, um, I thought it had promise. In fact, I thought it could be the ideal money because it doesn't have an intrinsic value. <laughs> In other words, it's the opposite of the gold bugs critique. Not that I think intrinsic value is an inher- uh, co- a coherent comment, but it doesn't have a, a non-monetary use. Um, so I thought it could, because it's digital and because it's a fixed supply, I thought it could be the perfect money. But I, I, I thought that if it started gaining traction, that the state would just shut it down because they would see that it was a threat. And so I was wrong about the the state's ability to, to sense the threat and to act quickly. So I made a bet with my friend BJ Boyapati in 2012, early 2012. I think the price was like um, $6. And I said something like, I'll bet you $100, BJ, that by one year from now, the price will be $0.60 cents or less. Because I thought if it went up, the government would just shut it down. So my only criticism of Bitcoin was that the state would, you know, would, would kill it. And um, by the near the end of 2012, it was up to $30. So I realized I had lost the bet. So I offered to pay BJ $100. And he said, if you pay me three Bitcoins, I'll, I'll call us even, which was $90. So he was just trying to get me to figure out how to use Coinbase and buy Bitcoins, which is what I did. So I started buying at the end of 2012 um, because I lost a bet about it failing. That is awesome. And hilarious. And yeah. I must say a pretty boss move by BJ. <laughs> yeah, he is. And he's got those two bit those three Bitcoins that I paid him. So uh, you know, that, that ninety dollars turned into whatever it will be in the future. Yeah. Currently three Bitcoin for those of you who don't know or aren't watching, it's a, it's worth about sixty thousand dollars. So I'd say VJ made a pretty good bet there. 
Yeah. Very funny. Uh, you and I came from a very similar view on Bitcoin. I also thought that the government would just shut it down at some point. And uh, what was it that made you realize that that wasn't going to happen? I mean, it, was it the price? No. What was it specifically that made you realize the government wasn't going to shut it down? Well, because it went from $6 to 30 and then over the years it kept going up and up and up, and the government was just slow to react. And then I, I think I saw the Uber, you know, the Uber example where you don't ask um, permission, you ask forgiveness later, and uh, something gets so entrenched that it's too late to stop it. I still think it's possible, and in fact, I do think that this, the fact that the state classifies Bitcoin um, as a commodity and as a good, as property. By the way, all these Bitcoiners that run around saying you can own a Bitcoin and Bitcoin's property, I think you should be careful what you wish for because by doing that, now it's subject to capital gains tax. And I think that is basically a quasi-outlawing of Bitcoin. I think that is hindering its 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 uh, you know its adoption. So I think it's 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 struggling right now, partly because of the of the capital gains problem. Um, that's just my own, my own take on it. Um, but I think that it's inevitable that we'll have a digital money that is decentralized and separated from the state, just like it was inevitable that we would finally have you know email replacing physical letters and things like that and digital information replacing analog information. Um, and so – and I also – I don't know if I'm quite a Bitcoin maxi because I've been – I thought I was a Bitcoin maxi, but the more I listen to other maxis, they have a different definition of it than me. They seem to focus more on like the activism or your or where your focus is. For me, Bitcoin maximalism always meant – to me, it makes sense there can only – there only needs to be one money in the world. And so eventually we'll, we'll move to a world with one money, just one. You, you don't need – one money for encryption and one money for this and one money for that. It's just ridiculous. Money's purpose is to be the most commonly used medium of exchange and the most you know liquid asset. So I think we're going to converge onto one money eventually, um, and so it's going to be a digital money. So it's going to be one of the, of the 20,000 cryptos out there, and I think Bitcoin is probably the one that it will be because it was the first and it's got the longest chain and all these other things. So to me, that's what Bitcoin maximalism means, but… I get the impression that some of the other Bitcoin maxis mean something else by it. They mean something like that's where you put your attention and your focus on development. But I don't do any of that. I just hodl. So I don't know if that means to put your focus on 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 only one of the many cryptos. You know, that's an that's an interesting point. I suspect that if you asked a hundred Bitcoin maxis what a Bitcoin maxi is, you might get a hundred different actual definitions. That's interesting that you yeah. Um, something I'm, I'm curious about uh, is if you study history, you've seen that humans have always used different things as money. And, and almost always there's been competitive monies that humans have used. So I'm curious about your views. What makes you think that we will converge on one? Well, because oh, – so I'm an Austrian in the Misesian tradition, so not a Hayekian. Um, I think there's just been competition because money emerges out of a barter society, and there's many things that can be money. So it takes a, a while before the market uh, figures out um, uh, which one is the best one. And um, money only – money's main function is to overcome two problems, which, which beset 
um, humans living in a barter society. Number one is the you know the um, the problem of um, that you can't uh, you can't uh, find someone who wants to buy what you want to sell. Okay, so that's the standard barter problem. And the other problem is the inability to calculate profit and loss for competing projects in your mind uh, in in sort of comparative terms. That is, you like if you want to you have a certain amount of resources, you could like build a build a bridge or you could build a, a, a you know a tunnel or something like that. Um, and you don't know which one to do, but if you can compare them in some kind of comparable units, like money units, then you can make a comparison and you can have rational economic calculation. This is all losing on Mises and stuff like that. So when money emerges, it solves the problem of the double coincidence of wants problem of barter, and also it allows it, it allows rational economic calculation. Okay, so that's what money's purpose is but you only need one money for that and you have to keep in mind that money is not itself wealth money is just uh, the, something that can be traded for things that have wealth so that's why for example if we just double the supply of dollars overnight we're not twice as rich because you're just changing the prices but if you double the supply of cars or houses or food overnight we are richer because those are real goods and this is why Mises and Hoppe and Rothbard, these Austrian economists that I follow, um, they would say that money is a sui generis, which means a unique good. It's not like a consumer good and not like a capital good. Um, consumer goods and capital goods are two types of goods, but they're the good of the type where if you increase the supply, you make us wealthier because each unit of the supply is actually um, useful on its own. Um, now, each additional unit is worth less than the last one. That's what the law of marginal utility means. But still, each unit of a supply of a good is wealthy in its own right. So if you increase any supply of any good, you make us the human race or the possessor of the goods wealthier. But if you increase the supply of money, you don't, Okay, which is why I favor Bitcoin because it's a fixed supply. And you know, you, you have a lot of people, a lot of Keynesians, a lot of uh, even a free banker type Austrians. Um, who believe that uh, the money supply needs to be so-called flexible. I think that's complete BS. I don't think the money supply needs to be flexible at all. I think a fixed, absolutely fixed money supply – in fact, with Bitcoin, the, the money supply is decreasing all the time right? because you always have loss. So if we get to 21 million Bitcoins, then if we, if we reach that peak in 108 mm. years or whenever – it's going to keep well, going it, down. It, every it year. may or may not. It may or may not be decreasing all the time because we have new supply. So the, the 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 amount of loss would have to exceed the amount of new supply coming into the system. Although it is pro Here's it is point. programmatically designed to to decrease the amount of new supply over time every four years. Yeah, I'm talking about after it's done when we reach the 21 millionth Bitcoin in 108 yes. years or whatever that is. Um, at that point in time, the money supply is fixed, but it might actually decrease because you'll have a little so-called friction, yes. and you might lose a satoshi here and there. Um, now, maybe they'll be recovered someday when each satoshi is worth a trillion dollars. I don't know, but the point is, it's definitely not increasing, and I think that's a good thing. Um, so, my view is that unlike the view of the free bankers and the fractional reservers and the fiat money types and the Keynesians, um, you simply just have a fixed money supply, and Everything else shifts around that. So if there's an increased demand for money, like people want to borrow more money, then the price of, the price of interest would go up. You know, so the price of money would change. I don't see a problem with that at all. Um, lots of the free bankers think that there's a psychological problem where people get used to a certain wage, 
and they have this psychological resistance to having their wages go down in nominal terms to adjust to the changes in demand. But I think that's just because people in today's world um, have a different conception of what money is. And I think in a, in a Bitcoin world, they would have a totally different view of time preference yeah. and, and of money. And they would understand that, hey, I'm getting paid a salary of 0.3 Bitcoins a year right now, and next year it's going to be 0.29 but the purchasing power of that is 10% greater, so what do I care? I mean, I don't, I don't think people exactly. are stupid. I don't think people are stupid. I think they would yeah, yeah. be people fine Yeah, yeah, people can figure that. it out. They, if you, okay, if you grew up, if there was an all, another planet where all they ever had was Bitcoin, and, and you grew up in that system, that would, you know, it would just make complete sense to you. Yeah, there's, there's several really good articles, like by Guido Holzman, I think by Guido Holzman on the ethics of money production, and by, uh, there's a great article some of your audience might like, it's by the recently. You guys, deceased. I'm sorry. Did you guys hear that from Tomer? Yeah, I, I removed him. I'll, uh, I'll I'll let him know. Oh, I thought he was playing video games. <laughs> sorry, Stefan. Please continue. <laughs> is, it, is this the effect I have on your audience? <laughs> you never no. know what you're going to get in here, man. This is like, uh, you know, you're rolling the dice when you come hey, into hey, one of these rooms, man. Hey, I'm, I'm an anarchist, so it's okay with me, but um. No, there's a good article some of your audience might not have heard. It's by Paul Cantor, C-A-N-T-O-R. He, he died a year or two ago. He was an, an old Austrian school um, uh, literary cultural critic, but he wrote a great article about – I think it's called – it's in the Review of Austrian Economics. It's called um, uh, Thomas Mann and Hyperinflation, and it talks about the cultural and the effects on the, on the psyche of a nation when you have this inflation or hyperinflation. It just it really has a tremendous effects, and Guido Holzman talks about this, and I think some others, maybe VJ, maybe Sapadina Moose, both both good friends of mine, um, have written about this. So I think we really have to imagine a world of sound money, and it, it would change the character of the whole nation, I believe, or the whole people. Um, anyway, that's a tangent, but I went to it. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. I mean, I think that's right. Uh, Phil, good morning. I think you had a question maybe for Stefan. Hey, good morning, guys. Glad to uh, be here in chat. Stefan, good to see you again, man. So, hey, howdy, howdy. So, this is kind of a tangent here, but you're talking about how you know Bitcoin is in property and whatnot. As a uh, patent lawyer and dealing with intellectual property, what is your take on Bitcoin being free speech? Oh, yeah, I've talked about that before, too. Um, well, I mean, if you want to be precise, which is what I try to do all the time, um, nothing is property. So the word property should be used to refer to a relationship between an owner and a scarce resource. Okay, So if I own a car, people say that's my property, but the right way to say it is I have a property right in the car. Okay, So the car is not property. The car is a resource which I happen to have a property right in or I, I own. So then the question is, so what types of things can be owned and which types of things can you have property rights? And those are only scarce material resources in the world, which I call conflictable things. Now, information cannot be owned because information doesn't exist as a free form, as a freestanding, independently existing entity that, that people can have a conflict over. Information is simply um, the impatterning of a substrate. Like it, because you have to store information somewhere, either in your brain or on a cassette tape or on a CD or on the pages of a book. So it's always just the way an, an object is arranged or an underlying carrier or a medium or a substrate. 
and those things are always physical and those so those are always owned by someone so you can't have double ownership so if you if you say i own the pattern of information then you would have to own all those carriers that that embody that information which is what copyright and patent do okay so this is the fundamental flaw of all these ideas you simply cannot information is not an ownable type of thing information is the way is store, always stored on, on a substrate. So for the same reason, Bitcoin, I believe, can be viewed as a ledger, which is just a, a, a set of information stored on a distributed set of, of, of carriers, like you know the, the tens of thousands of nodes and miners that have copies synced in parallel every 10 minutes around the world. But all those are privately owned hardware memory devices, which are just arranged in a certain way to have the similar information, the similar um, uh, you know, the, the blockchain stored on them. And so those people own their computers. The information on them is not ownable. So Bitcoin to me is just a representation of an entry on this ledger, which is distributed. So Bitcoin cannot be owned um, th th in, uh, as, as a legal matter. Now, the way it's, the system is designed, you have practical possession of it because no one can, can change, can, can trans transmit your Bitcoins without knowing your your key because of the way the system is designed so it's, it's it's actually in a way better than legal ownership because people can violate your they can trespass against your private property rights they can they can sometimes get around your the legal protections but it's almost impossible to pick the way it's better but when the, when the garbles at property they're doing it because they have the kind of classical economics view that anything that's an economic good, that is something that you quote-unquote value, that you could quote-unquote sell for monetary dollars is a quote good and therefore is a quote asset. Uh, the fucking tax law, right? So this is how this all starts. <laughs> so when Bitcoiners get so excited… You're cutting out just a little bit there, Stefan. Oh, am I? Sorry. Um how about now? Better. On a term. All right. Right now? Yep. Okay. So I think that it's a mistake to ask to lobby for the government to recognize Bitcoin as property. What I do think that we, we should want is for the government to um, include Bitcoin in legal tender law so that it's not subject to capital gains tax. <coughs> Love it. So, is it free speech? Just, oh, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. So, the free speech argument. Um, so, as a libertarian, there's no right to free speech uh, because you, don't, you only have the right to engage in actions that don't trespass against other people. So, on my own property, I have the right to free speech because I'm in my own property. I'm not invading one else's property. If I'm at, on your property, I have to follow your rules. So, there's no absolute right to free speech. We come up with these fictions which are designed to limit the power of the state because the state is a criminal organization and everything they do is 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 a threat to us so we come up with these fictions these civil rights which are not real rights like free speech because it's a convenient way to limit the power of the government so i'm in favor of the first amendment because it's at least an attempt to say okay we have this powerful central state which has the power to kill us but and to regulate our lives, but at least they can't they can't uh, pass a law that um, that violates uh, the, the right to freedom of speech, freedom of belief, freedom of assembly, that kind of stuff, freedom of the press. 
Um, and so those those kind of artificial limitations or prophylactic measures can be useful to limit the power of the state as long as you don't delude yourself into thinking there's a right to free speech, which is everyone does, right? Because they'll say, oh, Twitter's violating your right to free speech because this, but they're not because they're used to the concept of free speech as a good value. But the whole principle of the First Amendment is to limit the power of the state. Um, and so the question is, would could that apply to something like code or computer code or Bitcoin itself? There have been some cases where that, that argument has worked on occasion, but I think it's, a, it's increasingly a stretch because the more functional something is, then the, it's sort of like the, the distinction between copyright and patent law, like what types of works were covered by copyright. What types of works are covered by patent? These are all artificial distinctions, but the statutory law makes a distinction. So if you come up with an artistic, expressive, creative, original work of art or a novel, that's copyright. If it's a functional machine or process or invention, that's patent law. Um, and so – and the things covered by copyright tend to have First Amendment implications. Now, what is Bitcoin? It is code, and some cases have said that um, – that the code behind software is speech because it's, it's, it's written down. That is why copyright copyright used to used to not apply to um, computer code because it was functional. Because if you think about it, software is just the software way of of doing a machine. Because once you program a, a general purpose processor in a computer, which is a hardware device, which is not free speech, right? That's a device. You could design it to do something, or you could just write some code and put it into the processor, and then it makes it do the same thing. So functionally, it's just like a functional thing. That's why software is covered by patent and copyright now because of these these legal decisions. Um, and so by the same token, I think you could make an argument that um, that Bitcoin is protected by the First Amendment and free speech. But I think my guess is it would fail because it's too functional. Because it, it's right. the government's going to they're going to classify it as a as a, as money. So they think in these in these <clears throat> in these terms with statutory statutory law and regulations and government courts they they always try to classify things like um, is this money or is it speech? Is this property or is it uh, I don't know a, a security or, or whatever you know. They, they always try to classify things to fit them into these buckets that fit to these artificial distinctions that's, that are made by the, by the statutory law. So my guess is that the free speech arguments for the code underlying um, Bitcoin and the encryption related to it probably won't work, but I think they're worth trying. Right, and just like to add one more stretch, I, I come at it as Bitcoin – could be free speech in the way that you just have, I guess, the uh, like possessive ability of the information to move that transaction from there to here without any interference. And I think one of the stretching arguments might be like the inalienable right, right? And I, I would think that like at least in the Bill of Rights or the first 10 amendments or whatever, like free speech might be one of those inalienable rights. No, I don't think you could use that in like an argument in the court of law or anything, but um, I don't know. I, I just kind of feel like that's kind of in line with, you know, Rothbard's ethics of um, li liberty and everything and how that all kind of works out. Have you thought about that at all? Well, I mean, so there's a legal point of view and there's, there's a libertarian point of view from the legal point of view. Um, so some arguments just won't work. I mean, you could argue, for example, that conscription, 
into war violates the First Amendment because once you become a soldier, you can't say certain things, right? You're under the command of your of, – of, of, the, of the military. So you can say, well, if you can script me, that limits the speech I would have. So First Amendment ban- bars conscription. But that's obviously not going to fly. The government would just disregard that kind of argument, just like they, they, they throw out income tax protester arguments that, oh, there's no law saying I have to pay income tax. Now, from a libertarian point of view, I think rights are unitary and holistic, and they all connect to each other, and ultimately they're all about property rights. So for example, if you tax someone, technically speaking, the, the, the problem with that is that it's, it's, it's a threat. So the government is basically coercing you. They're saying we are threatening to put you in prison if you don't hand over some of your money. So the, the crime there is an, is an assault. Assault is a type of a threat to harm someone. That's what that's what that is. Now you could also call it stealing. You say, "Well, they're stealing my money." I mean, they're not technically stealing your money because they're not they're not actually coming to you and taking it from you. They're just coercing you. It's, a, it's an aggression either way. And you could also call it, "Oh, they're stealing my time because you know if if they tax me at forty percent, then that's forty percent of my life that's being spent." So I'm like, like you could say, I'm like a slave. You can make all these metaphors to explain. The bad consequences of immoral actions, but ultimately it's one thing or the other, right? So, with Bitcoin, you yeah, you can say that if if the government doesn't, um, if the government regulates and suppresses and fines and penalizes and outlaws Bitcoin or anything like that, you could call it a type of violation of your free speech rights because that's one consequence. Um, but you could also just say it's just it's just naked aggression because the government is threatening me with. With prison if I don't comply with these laws. So there's lots of ways to characterize the complicated ways the state tries to interfere with our with our lives and our liberty and our property. Um, now, I, I don't really think that the primary function of Bitcoin use by us is to express ourselves, although the more resources and wealth that you have, the more ability you have to Express yourself, Mike. You, you know, you can have you basically have fuck you money if you're a billionaire, right? So you can say whatever the hell you want. So in a sense, there's a connection. So there's all there's always always these connections you can make. But to, to my yeah. mind, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I just had a random thought pop in my head. That that is unless you live in China. If you're a billionaire in China, you can't say whatever you want. But that's no, China. but I but I would imagine that the more wealth and power you have, the more ability you have to express yourself like you have a little bit more insulation from uh, from whatever system you're in unless you're in china true but <laughs> even, even there yeah. i imagine it's, it's probably better to be very wealthy as opposed to poor fair. unless unless it makes yeah. you a target that's yeah. fair unless it makes yeah, you a that's target. Fair. but yeah but yeah yeah i'm no fan i want to uh, I, I wanted to ask you about something um and i'm going to paraphrase what i think you said correct me if i'm inc- if i'm wrong but something along the lines of socialism is institutionalized violence. Correct. Uh, well, that, that's, that's not exactly right, but that's close. Um, so the classical understanding of socialism is, is this the, um, the centralized control of the means of production. So you could have some socialists or communists who say, oh, you know, all the industry should be owned by the central collective, by the state. But, you know, it's okay if you if it's okay if you own your your clothes, I guess, if you're a consumer. So they try to distinguish consumer goods from from the capital goods, from the producer goods. Um, but Hans Hermann Hoppe, who I think is like basically our greatest living economic and political 
thinker because um, he's Austrian, Rothbardian, and libertarian and anarchist, all these things. Um, he argues for like what what he call what I call an essentialist definition of capitalism and socialism. So he kind of tries to get to the essence of what's the root difference because, you know, there's really no inherent natural difference between a consumer and a producer good because Austrians believe in subjective the subjective view of economics, which is that uh, subjective the view of the subjective view of value. Value is not an intrinsic quality inherent in anything. Value is always subjective. It's, it, value is imparted upon things by the way humans act upon them, right? And by the same token, no good is either a capital good or a consumer good. It depends upon how the user is viewing it. You know, I might view my um, my coffee table as a consumer good because I like to use it and it's 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 uh, it's beautiful, or I might use it as a workstation table. So maybe it's a capital good. So. But it depends upon that. So the point is there's no inherent distinction between capital and consumer goods. So the classical definition of socialism doesn't make any sense because it says, you know, socialism is a system where the where the producers' goods are all all, all centralized. But the, instead Hoppe defines socialism as the institutionalized aggression against not violence, because violence can be neutral. Violence can be good or bad. Force can be good or bad. Even coercion can be good or bad. But aggression is, is the bad type of violence. Aggression means the initiated, unjustified use of violence against someone. So he defines socialism as a system where there's institutionalized aggression against private property rights. And capitalism in idealized terms is the uh, a system where there's institutionalized respect for private property rights. Now, the reason the word institutional is in there is just to distinguish it from private crime. So – you can have – even if you have capitalist system where there's no socialism, where there's no, there's no institutional violence against private property. In other words, there's no, there's no socialist laws. You know, there's no taxation. There's no eminent domain. There's no conscription. There's no drug war. Um, you can still have an occasional act of private crime, and you can view those guys as little private socialists. You know? so, every, so basically everything that's criminal in the world is socialistic. It's just that if it's institutional, it's even worse. Which is why we, we sort of focus on the state as the greatest enemy, even though private criminals are also um, something to be worried about. But those can be usually handled <clears throat> with technical means, uh, but the state is a, is a widespread social problem. Wow. Um, we're, we're getting up against the end of the show. I really wish we had more time because uh, you have some very interesting views and um, – just want to appreciate or, or just say I appreciate you coming and hanging out with us. Maybe we could do it again sometime. Um, I, I uh, wish we had shifted to you sooner. It's really, really cool. Happy to do uh, it. Let's do this. Does anybody have any pressing questions for Stefan? And uh, we can do that. And then um, let Stefan get a couple of minutes to make some closing comments, uh, closing thoughts. You can plug anything you like, Stefan, if you have a new book or something like that you want people to know about. Um, I've been working. I've been working on a book for 15 years, but it'll probably come out next year. It's called "Law in a Libertarian World," which is basically um, a distillation of all these ideas. Uh, it'll be. Uh, it's on my website right now, online already. Um, StephanKinsella.com. Cool. Any questions for Stefan? Um, I'm sure there are, but everybody knows at this point we're at the end of the show. <laughs> I have more questions too, but hey, uh, hopefully Stephen, we can get. Is it is it Stefan or Stefan? Stefan. 
Like, think of the word Stephanie, Stephanie. the name Stephanie, but just take the E off. <laughs> All right, then. Well, really appreciate you hanging out with us today. It's been a fascinating discussion. I'm sure there's a lot uh, more deeper things we can go into uh, just based upon this brief time we've had you here today. So thanks for hanging out. Thanks, man. All right, guys, then. That's a wrap. You have been listening to Cafe Bitcoin. We do this every single day, Monday through Friday. We start at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern. We roll for two hours, talk about all things Bitcoin. Great place for your morning news, preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in Bitcoin to just chill and talk about what's going on. This is also a podcast. It's up on Fountain, Spotify, Apple, everywhere you get your podcasts. You can throw me a follow, Swan Bitcoin, to be notified of when those drop. Thanks to Swan Bitcoin, the sponsor of this show, my crew, Aunt Shane, Sats for Life, producer Jacob. I'm your host, Alex Yanzik. I work with Swan Bitcoin. If you want to know more about Swan, shoot me a DM. You can also shoot Terrence a DM, who's also up here on the stage. Thanks again to all the speakers who hang out here on the regular. Uh, thanks to Stefan for uh, chilling with us today. Appreciate you guys, and I admire you for what you do by taking your time to uh, teach people about this bright orange future. This is what we call getting on the mission around here. I encourage people to do it. Why? Well, I personally believe that Bitcoin is the peaceful path forward for humanity. Like if we don't do this thing, the potential for the dark roads are not good, man. Not look forward to those dark roads. Don't want to go down there. So instead, let's just switch monopoly boards, guys. Take your money out of the Monopoly board that these knuckleheads want you in. Put it in Bitcoin. Let's create a circular economy. It's going to be awesome. All right. Uh, everybody, love all you guys. Go out there. Have a great day today. And peace.